0: Heavens are telling of the glory of God, and the skies proclaim his handiwork. This is Good Heavens, a podcast exploring the wonders of God's heavenly creation.
1: In J.R.R. Tolkien's masterpiece fantasy trilogy, The Lord of the Rings, the hobbits come to a strange wood which they describe as frightfully treeish, As they carefully wind their way through the enigmatic wood, they are startled by an ancient-sounding voice behind them. Tree branches that look eerily like human hands and arms grasp the hobbits on their shoulders and turn them around. The hobbits soon find that they are staring at a, quote, most extraordinary face. It belonged to a large man-like almost troll-like figure, at least 14 foot high, very sturdy, with a tall head, and hardly any neck. The long face was covered with a sweeping beard, bushy, almost twiggy at the roots, thin and mossy at the ends. End quote. The hobbits were most taken by the eyes of this man-like tree creature. Quote, One felt as if there was an enormous well behind them, filled up with ages of memory and long, slow, steady thinking. But their surface was sparkling with the present, like sun shimmering on the outer leaves of a vast tree, or the ripples of a very deep lake, quote. Then the tree started speaking. From whom? muttered the voice, a deep voice like a very deep woodwind instrument. Very odd indeed. Do not be hasty. That is my motto. Such is the Hobbit's first encounter with the talking tree-man Ent named Treebeard. So you may be wondering at this point what Tolkien's Treebeard character has to do with some never-before-seen distant galaxies and other such things cosmological recently uncovered by the new telescope. Well, very much in every way, at least I hope so. So do not be hasty in thinking that there are no parallel analogies between Webb's discoveries and Tolkien's imaginative prose. I think the Hobbit encounter with Treebeard says something about the nature of discovery. The hobbits did not set out on their adventures for the purpose of finding a forest full of talking trees. They had no idea such things even existed. And so often it is the case with us. We set off on our adventures. We plan and plot our way through our day-to-day lives without much thinking about what unexpected surprises and discoveries may await us. The proverb reminds us that a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. The Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians that God is able to do far more abundantly above all that we can ask or imagine. And the more we go along our own journey, the more we discover we are not the author of it. Most of the life-changing and significant events in our coursings happen to us. They come as gifts, beautiful, undeserved moments, good works, the Bible calls them, prepared for us beforehand that we may walk in them. Being grabbed by knotted tree branches that look like a man's hands would come as a shock to any of us. But don't our most tragic and our most triumphant moments often seem to have that sort of surprise element to them? They come out of nowhere like a voice behind us, not a little unsettling. We are grasped and turned and find ourselves suddenly face to face with something or someone we never expected or imagined to see. We plan our ways, but the Lord directs our steps. Tolkien noted in his personal writings that times of great tragedy and times of great joy both bring tears. And when one has great joy after a time of great trial, it is something Tolkien called a eucatastrophe. A great deliverance relief joy that comes after a prolonged dark night of the soul recall the trials of George Bailey in the Christmas classic it's a wonderful life in the opening scene we see the little town of Bedford Falls at night covered in snow and the voices of George Bailey's friends and loved ones praying for him the scene fades into the heavens and brings us up to a small group of galaxies each of which are illuminated as angels discuss George Bailey's desperate situation. Setting aside the Hollywood theology for just a moment, there are nevertheless some things in this scene we can consider for our encouragement. The maker of the heavens is for us, not because of what we have done, but because of what he has done for us in Jesus. He hears our cries and the prayers of our friends and families, and when he sends help, he sends help from on high as David proclaims in Psalm 18, quote, He reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from foes too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into the open. He rescued me because he delighted in me, end quote. So why in the middle of my talking about Lord of the Rings do I mention It's a Wonderful Life? Well, some of the remarkable new imagery from the James Webb Space Telescope features the very galaxies in the opening scene of It's a Wonderful Life. They are more commonly known as Stéphane's Quintet and were discovered in 1877 by French astronomer Édouard Stéphane. Wayne will have pictures of these images on his companion blog article for this episode. You can see the links in the notes. If the one who made the universe is for you, who or what can be against you? As the Apostle Paul proclaims in Romans 8.35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Imagine the shock Mary experiences as she turns around in the garden to see Jesus alive and hears his voice, though at first she supposed him to just be the gardener. Woman! Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? He asks her. Mary came to the tomb in search of the lifeless body of her teacher, but instead got the shock of her life when she found Jesus not only alive, but heard his voice say her name, Mary. Mary. But what about our lives? We aren't Mary. We aren't hobbits in a fictional tale. We aren't George Bailey. We seem to be inconsequential. We often find ourselves in situations that seem to be impossible and overwhelming to us. I am recording this in the midst of some of my own personal difficulties, so this is as much preaching to myself as it is a means of encouraging you. I just had a crown from a root canal fall out this week and was told the tooth will have to be removed, and my car's transmission went out last week. One trial after another seems to befall us, and our expectations for help and relief seem to grow dim. Disappointment sets in, maybe our friends and family even say things that unintentionally discourage us. In the thirtieth chapter of the book of Isaiah, however, the prophet encourages us The Lord longs to be gracious to you, and therefore he waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are all those who long for him. As I have learned in my own life, the trials and difficulties, the opposition, the weeping that endures for a night, the diminished hopes of deliverance, are often unexpectedly transformed by Jesus through ways and means I never imagined. A voice behind me, encouraging and strengthening me to endure. Quote, For you people in Zion, inhabitant in Jerusalem, you will weep no longer. He will certainly be gracious to you at the sound of your cry when he hears it. He will answer you. Although the Lord has given you bread of deprivation and water of oppression, he, your teacher, will no longer hide himself, but your eyes will see your teacher. Your ears will hear a word behind you saying, This is the way, walk in it, whenever you turn to the right or to the left." End quote. Mary heard the voice of her rabbi saying her name, not at all something that she was expecting when she went to the garden that morning. And how often we go mourning with our low expectations of what God will do for us. How often we go to our gardens expecting only disappointment and death. How could Jesus possibly get me through this? On this episode of Good Heavens, and hopefully on all of our episodes... Wayne and I try to incorporate the human side of astronomy. We hope that you are encouraged to see the intimate connection God has established with us through what he has made and recognize his love and care for you. Good heavens is not just about science, but about the Lord Jesus Christ who made science possible. As Psalm 111.2 says, Great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them. And astronomy, like any science, is after all a human endeavor to understand the physical world. Scientists, because they are human beings, come to their craft with certain expectations and hopes and fears. Science is not all Spock-like logic and computer algorithms. The history of science is filled with remarkable stories of unexpected discoveries. We often think of science as a methodological tool, but in reality, it is more like an art with some of the most significant discoveries coming through unexpected revelations, breakthroughs, and creative insights. Aha moments that are much more a gift than they are the outcome of rigorously applied methodologies. What the James Webb Space Telescope has uncovered in just the last month or so has been quite exciting. There has been talk of Webb's discoveries causing scientists to panic or to reconsider their assumptions about the universe as they know it. But whatever Webb discovers, and no matter what you are presently going through, the God who made it all knows your name and longs to be gracious to you, beyond what you can ask or imagine. Your way is not hidden from him. He has created, numbered, and named all the stars. Not one of them is missing, and neither have you gone missing from his care. And as you are able to ponder these breathtaking images, think about what they are declarations of god's glory the hobbit's description of treebeard's eyes might be a fitting description for the myriad of wondrous galaxies photographed by web quote one felt as if there was an enormous well behind them filled up with ages of memory and long slow steady thinking but their surface was sparkling with the present like sun shimmering on the outer leaves of a vast tree or the ripples of a very deep lake, end quote. Let all the galactic radiance remind you of God's deep and endless thoughts toward you, the sum of which cannot be counted, as David says in Psalm 139. The God of the universe will send help from on high. No matter where you are or what you're going through, Jesus will supply all you need for his glory, more than you have thought to ask for, and more than you can even imagine. He longs to be gracious to you. He will put his hands on your shoulders and turn you from sin to himself. As Jeremiah says, Restore us to thee, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. Lamentations 5.21. Having read Lord of the Rings all the way through at least twice that I can remember, it's my own humble opinion that there may indeed be many years of autobiographical wisdom emanating from Tolkien's pen throughout Lord of the Rings. And maybe that's why Lord of the Rings has remained so popular. It is a personal and enduring tale of light and hope amidst the darkness. So when it comes to interpreting our own personal circumstances or the wonders of the cosmos, let us all heed Treebeard's motto, From Whom? Do not be hasty, for help is on the way. Well, good heavens, Mr. Spencer. It's another good heavens.
0: Yes, good heavens. Here we
1: go again. Here we go again. Let's give it a whirl. There's some uh, pretty cool stuff going on above our heads, Wayne. In fact, probably everything that we're going to be talking about is above all of our heads. Well. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah, it is. Uh, And it's way out there. It's way out there, and it's above all of our heads. And uh, probably, um, despite the fact that we might sound like we know what we're talking about, uh, neither Wayne nor myself have ever been to these places out there in the deepest recesses of the universe. But but that's where we're going, Wayne. We're going back in time, if we're looking at the universe correctly. We are looking at some galactic—I don't even know how you'd call it. These would be like fossils of the earliest universe. And there are already some tremendous, mind-blowing surprises that uh, have been uncovered by the new James Webb Space Telescope we talked about last month. And uh, we talked about the telescope last month, a couple episodes ago, and today we're going to be talking about how the telescope has uh, sent cosmologists and astronomers back to their cubicles and drawing boards going, how can this be? (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah and uh you know dan it's always exciting uh to see something new that has never been seen before right right and uh and so with the james webb telescope you can i i like to take the images and things that were seen before from other things like the hubble space telescope or maybe the Spitzer telescope, because James Webb is the successor to Spitzer. Actually, right, right. They shut down Spitzer right before they launched the James Webb telescope. hmm mm-hmm. And uh, but uh, it's good to compare the new to the old sometimes and see what's new that you can make out in it.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. This is the uh, the telescope that has been promised for. For a long time, it doesn't replace Hubble. It uh, replaces, as you say, Spitzer, because Spitzer was infrared, and those are the most, uh, the weakest, the most distant uh, lights on the electromagnetic spectrum, and uh, the wavelengths of red light are the hardest to see. So we got uh, we got James Webb out there that can look at uh, some infrared light in the deepest earliest part of our universe because uh, according to big bang science our universe is expanding and galaxies are flying away from us uh like um uh, like people in tokyo running away from uh, godzilla uh these are uh, surfing along on the cosmic uh space-time fabric that uh <laughs> this uh, sort of magic carpet that's is kind of stretchy and, and travels faster than the speed of light. It's not the light that's traveling. It's this uh, invisible stretchy fabric stuff that is flying away from us. And it's got the galaxies on it and the galaxies are flying away from us like Frisbees at a, uh, at a golf tournament, at a Frisbee golf tournament or something. I don't know. I don't know what the right metaphor is, Wayne, because this is some fascinating stuff. <laughs> So uh, yeah. I have uh, three papers pulled up that we'll be referencing. These are not, I will say, the papers that we're going to be talking about, have just come out in the last couple of weeks. They have not been peer-reviewed, and uh, I will put links to them in the description notes so that you, more science-minded people, can see that uh, where, where I may have missaid something, or uh, you can look at the science. There's all kinds of really wonderful configurations and discussions going on in these papers. They're on the archive website where scientists post non-peer-reviewed papers, but uh, the data that's coming in from James Webb Wayne, uh, the data that is coming in from James Webb Wayne is, uh, is exactly what Psalm 19 says. Day to day pours forth speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. So literally, there's so much information coming out of this new telescope, scientists can't keep up with it. So, uh, every day, yes. every day I was reading just a couple of weeks ago. And then just like this morning, every day, some new record is set. Some scientist finds this and they say, Oh, it's the oldest galaxy, the furthest galaxy away. And then two weeks later, Oh no, this one is. <laughs> and, uh, so, uh, the prediction is that more and more of these things will be seen as, uh, they, they focus the telescope in, in the deeper parts of our universe. Uh,
0: yes. Yeah, so the, uh, they measure uh redshift with uh something that it, they often just refer to it as z. Yeah. It's kind of a ratio but they, the old, the farthest redshift of any object I think used to be 13.1 or something like that. Mhm. And now they have detected with the James Webb uh 16 and I think 18, but they may debate about some of these for a while.
1: Yeah. Now, one – now, we should say, so, so So our audience kind of knows, I just kind of learned this myself. There is a chart for if it's a redshift of one or a redshift of two or a redshift of three. And you can Google those fairly easy. But you can go all the way down to uh, a redshift of 11 and see the distances of, of what each uh, – how they increase in magnitude. And so what we're talking about here with these redshifts in the Z of 16, 18, and I've heard maybe even 20, or maybe they're expecting to find redshift galaxies at 20, Um, you are going to be looking at things allegedly that are 13.1, 13.2 billion light years away from us right at the very edge of what astronomers are telling us is the beginning of the universe.
0: Yes, and... uh Dan, I, I heard an interesting thing on how sensitive the infrared is of the James Webb telescope. This is a neat way to to put it. They they say it could detect the heat from a bumblebee at a distance uh, to the moon. Wow, I hope they don't find any bumblebees in these distant galaxies. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's how sensitive it is and, and how it can uh, see heat wow Uh, okay so i didn't know it was quite that
1: that sensitive oh it's amazing yeah yeah that is incredible one of the things that uh it was funny to me well it's not funny but you knew this was going to happen so you know that uh, you've heard before the james webb was launched we had hubble and hubble could look into the background of everything and, and tell us uh look at these amazing images that hubble has given us But some of Hubble's most distant images of our galaxy, of our universe, excuse me, um, show these like contorted egg-shaped galaxies that don't look like they have distinctive uh, spiral patterns or they they don't look like galaxies that we see normally uh, up close spirals with distinctive shapes. But of course, uh, you bring in James Webb, who has a tremendous uh, uh, focal power that Hubble does not have, And suddenly some of these egg-shaped and mysteriously shaped ones are now, oh look, they actually have distinct spiral shapes to them. Now, this was, I don't know if it was expected or unexpected, but uh, what they have discovered with the James Webb are spiral galaxies, fully formed structural spiral galaxies in the earliest parts of the universe. Uh, Some, I think the, the latest one that I've read is only 200 million years after the Big Bang. And that's significant because prior to James Webb, nobody really thought that fully functional, uh, spiral-shaped, fully mature galaxies like we see in our in our immediate universe are out there at that distance.
0: Yeah, so, Dan, let's talk about the Big Bang theory yeah. a little yeah, bit yeah, to yeah. explain this because this is... Uh, You know, when you're looking at things like this, how you interpret things makes a big difference. Uh, But now, in the Big Bang, okay, what does the Big Bang actually give you? It gives you an expanded universe. And it gives you expanded gas. (laughs) Now, that's not actually explaining the formation of things, okay? The Big Bang theory itself does not explain the f- formation of stars or galaxies. That requires separate theory mm-hmm. to explain because the Big Bang just expands the universe. Now, so after the Big Bang, they believe there would be this period that's kind of it's referred to in different ways as the dark period or the dark zone or something. And that's after it has expanded and the gas has cooled off, but stars and galaxies haven't formed yet. So uh, they they believe that once the gas has expanded and cooled off, gravity will start pulling it together. And it's still kind of a mystery how the first stars would form in this. They don't really... have a theory for that that's right. very clear. But the they've been there's been a long debate about which came first. Does the galaxy start forming first and then the stars form within it or do the stars form first and then the stars collect together to be galaxies?
1: Right, we have a chicken and the egg problem already.
0: That's right. So they today the the approach they tend to favor is the stars forming first. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so they believe the the first stars formed around 180 or 200 million years after the big bang happened. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so the James Webb is supposed to be seeing back to like the edge of this dark period. Yes. Mm-hmm. And and yet they are seeing galaxies, See they in their Approach to things, they think that it takes a long time for galaxies to form because nor- what they normally do in looking at the universe today, okay, they they see a nebula and they they assume okay here's a supernova somewhere not too far away and the supernova has a shock wave compresses the gas and they they believe often stars form in a cluster because you have these shock waves from an explosion right. that that makes it a whole bunch of stars form along the shock wave. Yeah,
1: that the compression of gas. Uh, it's like a, a shock wave would uh, press the gas together in little nuggets um, because they don't have another mechanism that could uh, squeeze gas down into a core that you would need to ignite star formation. So they assume you need a supernova, to send the shock waves to compress the gas. Without supernovae, Wayne, as you said, and we've talked about this in our episode on uh, stars and star formation, that uh, that uh, gas resists compression. Imagine trying to put uh, aerosol gas back into a can. I mean, you would need something, some means of, of compressing it. Um, now, shockwaves can certainly do some compression, but uh, gas resists compression. So the great mystery of um, you kind of have to you kind of have to assume there is already a nugget of mass that is already kind of dense, uh, already there, so that you can have some gravity yes. to attract the gas. And so again, we have this. Okay, so where did the clumps of this matter come from that attracted the gas that was pushed into it by a supernova? It's a it's a kind of dominoes where nobody really knows where the dominoes begin.
0: Yeah, so uh and gravity is not enough in itself to compress against the the pressure of the gas. It's too weak. It's too weak. The the gas will stop the the action of gravity compressing it at some point. Mm-hmm. And so you how did the first star form then? If you don't have another a star to a supernova, how could the first star form? Yeah that's that's still a mystery, but um they uh so they expected to see some um kind of immature galaxies that might be irregular shaped you mentioned the irregular ones that they've seen with Hubble mm-hmm. and they kind of expected more of that right, and maybe smaller galaxies, and there are some small galaxies there there are what they call dwarf galaxies that they have found some mm-hmm. but um Looking back to these farthest objects with a new sensitive telescope like james Webb uh they're not seeing galaxies that look like they're still forming they they look like they've been there they look a normal. long time why are why are they normal galaxies it's right. not the problem right so and, and uh, how can you have stars that uh come together into these uh normal looking galaxies? uh in just a couple hundred million years. Yes,
1: yes. And I have a uh I have a quote just along those lines from one of the papers that has been recently published. Now again I will say to be fair, uh these astronomers are are publishing on the archive which is spelled ARXIV.org and this is where scientists will publish papers uh, that have not been peer-reviewed, that are sort of waiting for peer review. So, so But it's very detailed, high, high, good science, a lot of scientists named on these. Uh, this is not uh, conspir- conspiratorial uh, <laughs> theories or anything. This is good science, uh, the best science yes, there is. It, and uh, yes. so this paper, though, they were being a little silly uh, because the title of this paper, I found it to be kind of funny. Panic at the Discs. Now, the word panic has an exclamation point after it in the title of this paper and then and then it follows at the discs. Now, if you know your pop culture, uh Panic, there's a band that was formed in the early 2000s, uh a pop band called Panic at the Disco. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, I'm pretty sure that's what uh these uh astronomers were uh, thinking of when they wrote the paper. I'm pretty sure that's what they're referencing. <laughs> anyway, uh so Interesting title for this because if you go down, it's a this paper is eleven pages. It's it's readable, but you really need a science brain to get into the details of it. But okay, Dan, I haven't read this one. Yeah, you to it's, it, to me. it's uh, it was in the video that you sent me of that gentleman from um, uh, with the I think he's from Hungary or Belgium or something. Um, oh, uh, that he he had referenced this paper. So I like, oh, I'll go look it up. And uh, so in the discussion section, which is the last section of the paper on page nine. Um, this is the panic at the disks right here. This is the paragraph that begins the discussion. And the, the, the scientists say, um, this is one of the earliest papers on the morphologies of galaxies at high redshift with James Webb Space Telescope. Now, the redshift, again, is that Z thing we talked about going all the way back. The bigger the redshift, the farther away. So, like we said, there are galaxies now that have been, they seem to be tentatively, at 13 14 16 18 maybe 20. So this paper is discussing the shapes, what they mean by morphologies of galaxies that are very far away that have been spotted by James Webb. And they go on to say, and thus our conclusions will be revisited by others in the months and years to come. So they're they're admitting this is these are tentative conclusions. But they say, however, it does appear from an initial analysis that there are far more disk galaxies at high redshift than originally thought with the Hubble Space Telescope. We, in fact, find that at the highest redshifts probed by Hubble Space Telescope, there are, in fact, up to 10 times more disk galaxies than we had thought, based on the James Webb Space Telescope visual morpho- morphology. So in, in non-fancy language, We found 10 times more mature disk galaxies in a region of the universe than we had previously thought. There you go.
0: This reminds me of when you and I were talking about uh, these uh, gigantic galaxy clusters. Yes, things too big for the Big Bang. Yeah, things too big for the Big Bang. That still remains my all-time favorite podcast that we've done. It, it wasn't my best
1: uh, introduction.
0: I was a little cheeky with the introduction. Yes, but, you know, I, I really enjoyed that, that was so much. That's fun. Yeah, it, it was a good one. If, if, if some of our listeners haven't heard it, go back to some of our early ones. Yes. that's one of the really good ones. There
1: are things too big for the Big
0: Bang. Uh, anyway, so we talked about the problem of forming these huge uh galaxy clusters that are so long and so large right, and uh what if they are just created the way they are instead of them having to have time to form to pull together mm-hmm. what if they don't need time to pull together because they were they were started this way right?
1: well, you know you go back to let's take a look I think that 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 modern cosmology wayne is telling us something really fascinating that you know. Uh, They say, and you'll read this in any current uh, textbook or popular book, that that the universe, there's a lot of stuff going on at 10 to the minus 43 seconds. A lot of stuff happens in this, like, faster than you can blink your eye. It's like 10 with 43 zeros after the decimal point. Mm -hmm. It's a a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a second but it's amazing when you read the literature how much a cosmologist will cram into that very short period of time. So there are things that for all intents and purposes are appearing instantaneously in the modern cosmology. Now they will say that they won't say that it's a galaxy or anything, but somehow the whole basic structure of the universe comes into being within 10 to the -43 seconds. So that's pretty instantaneous. So I'm thinking as I'm reading this Uh, about these appearances and what you just said, I think it would be far easier if cosmologists just said, you know, if if a whole universe can sort of quantum fluctuate and pop into existence. Why not just uh, assume that uh, a a galaxy quantum fluctuated into existence or a star quantum fluctuated into existence? I mean, if we're talking about whole universes popping into existence, so to say, uh, why not these things? Because I think they're uh, much easier to describe if they were created as we see them.
0: Yes, of course, Dan, they are trying to make it fit some sort of semblance of physics. So they need to be able to show it in a mathematical way or they wouldn't be satisfied with it. Right, right. I I think it's still a valid point. You know, uh, God created from nothing, according to the Bible. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, you know, uh, today it's often thought that science has disproven faith in God but I don't think so I think it's just that science has limitations of what it can address right and uh, and things about origins are things that are issues that it really makes more sense to believe in a creator yeah I
1: was uh, just this morning I have a a brand new book that I just started getting to Um, where did the universe come from It's from uh, two Australian scientists, a cosmologist and a physicist. And uh, they posit, uh, they discuss, I haven't gotten through the whole book, so I'm not sure exactly where they are coming from, but they do discuss uh, the idea of a universe quantum fluctuating into existence. And basically they're saying that uh, for all intents and purposes, uh, where these quantum fluctuations occur, it is in empty space what they term nothing. And this whole idea was popularized by atheist Lawrence Krauss uh, about 10 years ago uh, in his book, A Universe from Nothing, where nothing is not nothing. It's a quantum vacuum. It is something. But in this vacuum, particles come in and out of existence rather quickly. And so it's interesting, Wayne, that, that one of the theories, and it's not the only one, and there's a lot of people that don't accept this in the scientific community, but the idea is there that our universe came out of something that is virtually nothing. So how interesting it is to me, I think, that uh, when we come down to it and science is grappling with how to explain the origin of the universe, that they start to sound a lot like a band of theologians who have been sitting on the top of a mountain for centuries going, yes, we knew creation ex nihilo (laughs) a long time before uh, particle colliders came to be.
0: (laughs) Yeah, in fact, since you mentioned theologians, Dan, I would like to give uh, a quote from one of my favorite books. Absolutely, please. This is uh, Francis Schaeffer and his book, uh, True Spirituality. It's my probably my all-time favorite book from any Christian, and uh, he wrote it in 1971, but he has a chapter in it called The Supernatural Universe, and I just want to read a couple of things here. Okay. It says, it says our generation is overwhelmingly naturalistic. There is almost complete commitment to the concept of uniformity of natural causes in a closed system. This is its distinguishing mark. Uh the naturalism of our generation tends to come in upon us. It may infiltrate off our thinking without our recognize without the, without our recognizing its coming. So he's talking about how Christians can uh assume this naturalism concept without realizing it sometimes. Mm. And he goes on, he says, um He talks about the unity of the Bible's view of the universe. This means that we must understand intellectually with the windows open that the universe is not what our generation says it is. Mm. And so, you know, it's within this concept of, um, because the universe came about by God's supernatural creation we are in a supernatural universe, not a naturalistic one per se. Mm-hmm. Even though we use science to study it, study it and we we uh, infer what we can from observations and from our science, that doesn't change the fact that the the origin of things is really beyond our ability to explain with science. Yeah. Uh, so, because it is a supernatural universe. It's something that God can act into it to have a relationship with us. Right. And that's where it becomes relevant.
1: Well, and I think, too, when you talk to skeptics or atheists and you talk to them about their naturalistic worldview, they've just assumed a distinction that I think is somewhat artificial. They just— call like a dandelion or a raindrop or a star or planet or trees uh nature um and and say well there's no such thing as supernatural because all we observe are natural things well it gets really tricky for the skeptic to, to try to define what nature is you're just assuming that it is the work of blind impersonal forces with no intentionality uh, at all. But the, the, the artificial distinction is drawing a line between nature and the supernatural. What is the supernatural realm to, to a skeptic? But everything has come about, as Romans says, through God's supernatural agency, that uh, the Bible says that God has clearly revealed his invisible attributes to us, his divine power through what he has made from everything down to the subatomic world of fermions and bosons all the way up to the to the biggest uh, string of galaxies or quasars, that everything in the heavens and earth display God's handiwork. And so, as you say, we live in a supernaturally created, supernaturally infused, uh, God-breathed creation. Uh, everything is sustained by him, and there is no— There th- Now, for the sake of Christian theology, God is not—we're not—, uh, we're not advocating pantheism God isn't in a blade of grass or a cow he's not in those things but they are uh, they are his handiwork as as Psalm 19 says about the universe that God has created these things they are the works of his hands the works of his fingers that David says and so so there really is that 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 looking for a naturalistic explanation is really sort of a a misguided quest because ultimately the, the the best explanation for why we are here goes beyond the nature that we do see. It goes beyond this physical world. And anytime you get into cosmological discussions with skeptics or uh, non theistic or non Christian people, they're, they're positing something. I mean, we just did an interview with um, Leslie Wickman, who's a, a, a Christian and an astrophysicist. And we, we talked about how when secular explanations for how the universe came to be start sounding a lot like God's nature. Something beyond space, something beyond time, something immensely powerful, something that transcends the laws of of known physics that bring about the universe. That starts to sound a lot like the God of the Bible.
0: Yes. So, um, in in Big Bang theory, you have to presume that there's something <laughs> something to start right, with. Right. Right. You have to, you you have to at least assume that somehow quantum. Mechanics and quantum theory works in some sense, and but quantum theory has to exist. I mean, it has to be in the universe. Mm-hmm. Something has to be there to um, to have these quantum waveforms and to have the energy. Right. And right. It doesn't. It does. It's not nothing. It's not nothing. say that, that they, they like to say the universe spontaneously happened. Out of nothing, and it didn't need a cause, but they, they're really presuming that there was something. Uh, they're not presuming nothing they're presuming there's a something
1: right, and that something usually is <laughs> when you when you get down to it, they have to say that this something has always been there, right. It used to be before Einstein that our universe was eternal. But now our universe is, seems to – science seems to, to to concur that our universe had a beginning, so our universe isn't eternal. So now, well, maybe there's something eternal or infinite that existed before our universe. Well, yes, but it's not another universe. It's not a multiverse. Even if it is a multiverse, the multiverse has to have an explanation. Uh, so you just keep pushing the, the curtain back further, one step yeah. further, the, the problem of – well, what generated the multiverse or what generated the laws or what generated these these quantum physics that are going on? Um, and one of the things that's interesting, Wayne, talking about some of – let's get into some of the findings of, of the James Webb. I, I remember seeing right when the first images came out how ex- excited some of the James Webb scientists were about finding distant galaxies – now, you talked about the sensitivity of Webb uh, picking up uh, the, the heat of a honeybee on the moon. I don't know why a honeybee would be on the moon. Uh, it's a bumblebee. Bumblebee. Okay. So uh, maybe bumblebees are, are— I don't know if we can detect a honeybee, <laughs> but they said a bumblebee. Maybe the honeybee that's eating would, would be too—who knows? Who knows? But, uh, but th- this, the web is so sensitive that it, they, they said that, that Webb was picking up signatures of oxygen. In these distant galaxies, yeah, and this is a head scratcher.
0: Keep in mind that the, in their theory, uh, up, elements up to iron could form in a star if it's a large star. Yes, yes. So oxygen is in that that group of things. So oxygen could form in a star if it was large. Yeah, that if know. it
1: was large enough that you need larger stars to to produce the the elements correct that's yeah the, that's what yes. I, yeah
0: so, so so and that's part of the theory is that the early stars were really big stars mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and they were capable of doing this now the early stars we've done a podcast on this a couple of them anyway um one or more uh the early stars are known as population three stars we have population one and population two stars which exist the population three stars are supposedly the early universe was filled with them and they all kind of went supernovae and producing these heavier elements. But as so far that I know of, Webb has not detected any population three stars. Webb has not detected any remnants of, of this what what you would think would be an abundance an abundance of uh, supernovae remnants of a universe filled with hydrogen helium stars that all went supernova somehow. There's no there's still no evidence of population three stars yet maybe. Maybe they will, but the further back we go, the more we should expect to see some evidence of population three stars um, in the earlier universe. And so far as I know, they haven't uncovered anything yet. But really a surprise to find oxygen in a, uh, in a deep, uh, deep galaxy. I mean, maybe it, maybe it's not as much of a surprise as I think it is, but it seemed to be uh, something that caught uh, the uh, astronomers off guard. And it's like, we found a galaxy with oxygen in it. So you know then talk of of oxygen and and water and uh habitable planets <laughs> started happening you know but they looked at
0: they looked at Jupiter with the James Webb, and that was interesting, Dan, because to now if you and I were looking at Jupiter, it would say that we were not so far away to us it would look like kind of a um Darkish gray sort of thing, you know, but to James Webb, it looks like a bright light. Mm. <laughs> Jupiter looks like a bright glowing sun almost. Wow! Except that you can you can see uh, the layers, and they can see things that uh, other telescopes wouldn't make out. So, like, Jupiter has a faint a very faint dust ring around it. And you can see that dust ring mm. with James Webb and the planet looks real, real bright. And then what you see is, is some of the um, the things around Jupiter that are normally hard to see. Mm. It's very interesting. Wow. So they were just testing it. And uh, so there's a lot of potential, some interesting things to find about exoplanets and, infrared is able to pick out different elements, like you were saying, with oxygen, and they could detect water. Mm -hmm. Uh, And if there's, like, a disk around a planet, they could detect if there's water in that disk, probably. Um, Yeah. So there's a lot of neat things they'll be able to do with that. I don't think I've seen any reports on that. Of course, you know, Dan, I think when when we see exciting new things, I think it's good to remember the advice of Treebeard, in Lord of the Rings, you remember in the movies, he said, "Now, now, don't be hasty." <laughs> yeah, right. So, when there's new new discoveries, we always need to remember Treebeard's yeah. advice. Now, now, let's not be hasty. That's good. Yeah,
1: Treebeard. <laughs> right. Right. He he moved and so, talked very slowly. Yes,
0: and it takes time to wade into the science and see. Uh, if if other scientists can confirm things, right. and sometimes they do change their right. conclusions a little bit. Well, now there's
1: a a, a fun story. Um, I know it gets into another galaxy that I we, we people discussed. Uh, people discovered through web uh, that um, uh, is is causing people to scratch their heads. And uh, the University of Texas here in Austin uh, is uh, helping to uh, interpret uh, the data coming in from. The Web, and uh, they're involved with a program called the Cosmic Evolution Early Release Science Survey. That's a mouthful, and the acronym is SEERS, with a C-E-E-R-S, and that's a project uh, that's working with the initial data coming from Web, and uh, a lot of that work is being done at uh, the University of Texas in Austin, and... um, There's a professor down there, Stephen Finkelstein or Stein. I don't know if it's Steen or Stein. um, He has a daughter named Macy. And so one of the galaxies that they found, um, they named after Stephen's daughter, Macy. So I thought it was kind of funny, and I haven't heard anybody pun on this one yet, but isn't it funny that the the Sears program has discovered a galaxy called Macy's? Mm Mm-hmm. Get it? Sears. Sears and and Macy's. Macy's. Yeah, right. (laughs) Oh, wait, we're going to have the Walmart Galaxy, the Target Galaxy, (laughs) the Neiman Marcus Galaxy. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I just thought that was kind of funny. Sorry for the bad pun. But uh, but, uh, in all seriousness, uh, Stephen Finkelstein and his team down at UTA is doing a lot of work in finding these redshifted galaxies at distances of uh, Z14 or more. Now, so this brings me to one of the things that the Sears program, uh, not to be confused with the department store, has uncovered. So uh, another paper, Wayne, that I have pulled up um, is called A First Look at the James Webb Space Telescope Sears. Massive quiescent galaxies uh, that exist in redshifts that are uh, between 3 and 5. Okay, so 4 point something or others. And they looked at uh, 9 or 10 of these galaxies, okay, and what they mean by quiescent is that they are inactive. The data suggests two fantastic things. That at a redshift distance of uh, z equals 4 or 5 or something like that, They are finding fully formed, massive galaxies that are not, allegedly not producing stars. So they're fully formed and no star forming regions within these galaxies. This is amazing. A supermassive galaxy, inactive, not producing any stars in some of the earliest parts of the universe. There's a whole paper on the quiescent galaxies. In the redshift of about Z equals four. And then there's the whole paper on just uh, the red spirals. And the, the paper is called Red Spiral Galaxies in the Cosmic Noon Unveiled in the James Webb Space Telescope. So uh, that, two, two different things. But so red stars, to, to, to remind everybody, red stars in the current Hertzsprung-Russell diagram of star formation, star evolution, red are initially stars that are believed to be old and uh, running out of fuel and becoming bloated. So interesting that you would find uh, a galaxy of red stars in the deepest part of the universe. Uh, spiral galaxies, nonetheless. And why no variety of of light and color? You know. Uh, and the Spitzer. It's it's interesting in that paper. The Spitzer shows how pixelated their infrared uh, detection was. And with with Webb. You can clearly see the color, uh, the orange, the bright orange-red in terms of contrasted with the other galaxies around it that have uh, multicolors in them as well.
0: Well, keep in mind that uh, the James Webb has three different uh, ranges of frequencies or wavelengths that it sees, and Mm -hmm. uh, they're all infrared. So if the real color is outside of what we can see with our eyes... So yeah. they then, like we talked about in our other program on James Webb, they assign the colors the way they want yes. to see yes. what they want to see. and that's, But that makes the images very interesting. So, for example, one of the really interesting ones, I think, is uh, of uh, something called Stefan's Stephen, Quintet. Yeah, that's beautiful. Uh, Stefan's Quintet is a really beautiful f- picture, and it's like five or more galaxies... Uh, that seem to be interacting is that one of them is nearer, or uh, much nearer than the others. And uh, so you're seeing the effects of galaxies uh, that are affecting each other and distorting each other's shape and doing some strange things. And so now there's a James Webb image. It's from the mid-infrared that MIRI. MIRI is the mm-hmm. mid-infrared instrument. And so they made one of them look kind of green and one of them sort of purple and red, and then the other looks like sort of blue, and mm-hmm. uh, so you can see things around them and between them that uh, would be hard uh, hard to see any other way.
1: Right. So they so when they color the uh, red galaxies, let me make sure I'm understanding. When they color, when you see these these deep field pictures, they are layered colored images chosen by carefully chosen by astrophysicists and astronomers, in terms of what they think the light would look like. But it's not just imagination. They see that this is these galaxies have been detected in the infrared. Uh, they exhibit a certain spectrum. And then they decide that if the naked eye could see these things, what would they indeed look like? So they try to represent it as accurately as, I, as they can. Is that correct? Yeah,
0: it's kind of like, uh, so if you imagine the spectrum on a line... And what we we wouldn't see any of it normally. So they are picking out different parts of it and sort of shifting it. Okay, what if we shifted this to the visible, and what would we see? Gotcha. And uh, then there's often you'll see uh, two of these instruments on the James Webb that will be referenced. One is called Cam, the near-infrared camera, NIRCAM, N-I-R-C-A-M that's the one that has the lower wavelength. And Dan, lower wavelength means higher energy. And so the, the near-infrared is the hotter material. And then the, there's MIRI, is the other instrument, which uh, M-I-R-I, and that's the mid-infrared. So that is the cooler material. And And if you're looking at something like a nebula, it's like uh the near cam gives you one layer, and Miri gives you a deeper uh a deeper layer that 's not as hot mm. it's it 's like Miri can see past the hot stuff to see the cooler stuff deeper in gotcha if it was a okay. nebula now on a star it 's a little different but um that 's it 's almost like you 're looking at layers of things with these different images.
1: Yes, yes. And um, it, it's, it's interesting because uh, there's an article, and I'll link this article in our notes below, um, we were talking about the assumptions about what the early universe looked like. So all these structures that we've mentioned, the inactive galaxies, the red spirals, um, these appearing in these very young, uh, early parts of the universe, uh, just 10 times more spirals, structure spirals than they imagined. Um, But there's a gentleman, and he's no relation to our former president, I don't think, uh, Jonathan Trump, who is a uh, physicist at uh, the University of Connecticut, um, is working on some of this data. And um, Jonathan says, and I don't mean to pick on Jonathan, but he, he gives basically the standard fair explanation for our early universe in this article. He says, quote, The universe starts out with only hydrogen and helium, And every other element on the periodic table is slowly produced by nuclear fusion in stars and distributed by supernovae over the 13.7 billion years from the Big Bang to the current time. And then he says, uh, Our new paper finds that infant galaxies are surprisingly enriched by oxygen and other non-primordial elements, suggesting highly efficient stellar fusion and explosions. In the early universe, end quote. Now, we've talked about this many times. It comes up in a lot of our conversations. It's either collisions or explosions. Uh, When you are dealing with the long, slow, gradual processes of the universe development, that the only way that you can explain them without God is by atoms colliding or... um, Hydrogen colliding or stars exploding or, you know, when you talk about planets forming, rocks and asteroids collide, uh, gas collides with shock waves, collisions and explosions over and over and over again all the way back to the beginning, which itself seems to be something of a explosion or expansion if you take inflation uh, to be true. But in order to explain the smoothness of the cosmic microwave background radiation... Alan Guth in 1980 proposed the idea that the universe just uh, inflated quickly like a like a balloon on a helium thing. It just in a matter of seconds expanded exponentially, but then suddenly stopped. Um, But but again, you you are you are proposing that the early universe had only hydrogen and helium and that slowly, gradually over time exploded, collided, exploded, collided. But, Wayne, the, the, the mind-bending thing is if you stop to think about these explosion-collision um, scenarios happening over and over and over again, this seems to be so counterintuitive to the order and arrangement and the beauty of the universe that so much chaotic exploding and colliding would yield such regularity that things move in a predictable pattern around in our solar system. But to explain the presence of oxygen... Um Dr. Trump here says that uh you had efficient stellar fusion and explosion in the early universe. In other words, it happened faster than we thought it, it did. <laughs> if we're seeing oxygen signatures in these deep galaxies, yes. then there must be there must be faster collisions and faster explosions and faster fusion going on. Like microwave <laughs> microwave uh microwave popcorn. How did the, we get popcorn in two minutes?
0: <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, they're, they're bound to come up with the new theories about uh, the first stars going, having very short lifetimes, or something. Probably because the, they're going to have to. Everything they're finding is is making them run out of time for the formation of stars.
1: Right, right. Uh, There's not enough. The farther back we go, again, we're running into the same problem that we spoke of a couple summers ago on our Things Too Big for the Big Bang. Um, If these quasar filaments, imagine Christmas lights that are uh, light years across in early parts of the universe. Now, if the long, slow, gradual process theory of standard model Big Bang cosmology is true— there wasn't enough time for these things to have developed. And so now we're seeing a similar problem, but with individual galaxies that seemed to be mature in their structure. Um, Before Hubble, well, during Hubble, you would see only these sort of egg-shaped, squiggly, amoeba-looking galaxies. But um, viva la resolution, you know, better resolution, shows that these squiggly, fuzzy things were actually more shaped in mature spiral galaxies. This seems to be, interestingly enough, Wayne, the same problem that Charles Messier had, uh, the comet hunter back uh, several hundred years ago, who was looking for comets, and because of the low resolution of his telescope, he could only find. He kept running into fuzzy things, <laughs> and you know, he made the list, the Messier list of things to avoid. Don't look at these things; they are not comets. <laughs> and what did they turn out to be? Galaxies, beautiful galaxies and nebula. Uh, and as our resolution improved, so did our knowledge of the universe. And now we know that these weren't just uh, glowing fuzzballs. Uh, The things that Messier avoided uh, are some of the most beautiful objects in the universe, including spiral galaxies. So the same thing happened here. We got a better telescope, and suddenly what was fuzzy and and odd-shaped seems to now have more of a definitive uh, spiral shape uh, in many of these things, which is puzzling. There just does not seem to be enough time in the current models to allow for this uh, to have developed.
0: Yeah, and one of my favorite pictures, uh, Dan, is... Is one that they've they've called the the web the Webb's first deep field image uh, it, okay it, yeah because it's rem, reminiscent of the Hubble Space Telescope's deep field images you oh, remember yeah those? yeah. we've talked about those uh-huh, uh-huh. and and when well, they make a long exposure at a dark part of the sky and they did something like that with the James Webb and uh, I think it said it was like a 12-hour exposure or something like that. And wh- mm-hmm. what they got was amazing. Um, so in the center of the picture, you see this bright star that has these spikes on it. Okay, now, in the James Webb images, some of the, you'll see stars in there that will have spikes on them. The spike stars are like an artifact of the telescope the telescope is looking past the nearby stars it's not trying to look at the near stars it's trying to focus on the distant things and Mm -hmm. uh but in the process you get these diffraction spikes from the nearby stars so Mm -hmm. ignore the spike stars in these images they aren't important yes (laughs) and then (laughs) so in this image in, this,
1: in the center oh by the way let me uh, let me pause you there I'll come right back okay. to this this is a funny thing my boss James at work sent me this picture I didn't even see it until he sent me this uh, apparently a couple astrophysicists um, in all the flurry of putting out new web pictures put out this beautiful picture of a web with this really enigmatic looking uh, reddish white star in the middle of it and it went ooh and ah and viral for a while but it turned out and it was a pun the uh, astrophysicists put a piece of uh, pork sausage <laughs> it was a, cut, a cutaway piece of a pork sausage and they just made it real small and they put it on top of a star and they said this is a really strange thing and then they <laughs> later they so the picture went viral after everybody was sharing it ooh look at this you know and it was just a piece of pork sausage but
0: anyway uh, you're right ignore the diffraction
1: spikes and uh, so so go on go on with the story
0: okay here. so uh, I haven't seen any sausages in the images yet but anyway uh <laughs> So in the center of the picture, <clears throat> there's something you don't see that's affecting the picture a whole lot because there's a cluster of galaxies that um, it, it's causing there to be these uh, streaks of, that look like they're arcs of a circle around the middle of the picture. And this mm-hmm. is uh, gravitational lensing. So what's happening is there's... There's a big cluster of galaxies, and that cluster of galaxies is really massive, and it's distorting the light from the stars behind it. So there are stars, are in, or actually galaxies behind it. I should say galaxies. There are galaxies that we would not normally see. We can't see them, even with James Webb. But mm. when when the light from those distant ones in the back, if, if when they Pass by this big galaxy cluster the the light of this distant galaxy gets smeared out by the gravitational effect on the light as it goes by mm. this big cluster and this yeah. distorts the light into streaks, so what it would is actually a galaxy like a normal galaxy comes out looking like a streak of light around the edge and, well it's it's sort of uh Roughly in circles or rings, you might say.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's like the Lord put uh, put extra observing power in the cosmos. It's almost like uh, uh, Freeman Dyson, the late physicist, said. Uh, you know, from my perspective, some, it looks like the universe knew we were coming. You know, here we <laughs> yeah. can sit on we can sit on the Earth, put a telescope on a shelf. We call Lagrange Point One. I think it's Lagrange Point One. Uh, anyway, we can put a telescope at a Lagrange point, point no, it out into space, and lo and behold. A lens is waiting for us out into space that helps us to see even deeper than our telescopes well,
0: It's l two actually I think where where James Webb is uh, l two yeah. thank you yeah yeah still the 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 idea of these
1: little gravitational shelves where you can like put stuff and they'll stay put. Uh, there's like a platform where we can put our telescope. And then when we aim our telescope out there, lo and behold, there's another lens that uh, doubles the power of, I don't know, doubles or whatever, but helps us to see beyond what we would we would normally see with the telescope. It reminds me of uh, years ago when the little rovers were going all over Mars. <laughs> I don't know the names of them off the top of my head, but uh, they were solar powered. And so their solar panels were constantly getting covered in red dust when there was a windstorm on Mars. And uh, Martian dust devils would come by and brush the dust off the solar panels and keep the things going. And you're like, you know, that's you could you could say that's a coincidence, but uh, the God of the universe <laughs> yeah, no. was definitely helping out our scientists with uh, dusting off the uh, uh, the panels. But you know that that's that's the way it seems that the universe looks like it was suited for us. To make these kinds of discoveries. It is discoverable and intelligible, and we're spending billions of dollars to look at these things. This is like the crown jewels of the universe.
0: Yeah, and it's just uh, very beautiful. And uh, um, I've often thought, well, you know, we could have – it could be God made the universe without all of these objects out in space, and we didn't have anything to look at. Right, uh, But he didn't do that. He gave us a beautiful starry sky and, uh, with many amazing things out in space to look at. And when we look at these things, it should make us think about the Creator.
1: Right. And, you know, to me, I know there's, there's a lot of in-house debate with believers about this, but I thought I'd mention it, uh, something we can get into a little bit here. Um, when we're talking about, you know, the rakia, in Genesis, that God separates water from water and creates the rakia, which is, I think, best described as the word space that uh, we use today, that there's a, a void, if you will. Um, God separates water and into the rakia, he puts the lights. And then in Genesis 1.14, he says, then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. Yes. And let them, to be, let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens, to give light on the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. Now, in the Hebrew, it just says he made the stars. The, 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 the also isn't there. And then God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on earth and to govern the day and the night. To separate the light from the darkness and God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning a fourth day. So the stuff that we're seeing in the deepest recesses of the universe, in my opinion, Wayne, and I think we agree on this, that uh, the, that, that was all there on day four. Yes. I think that uh – now it's interesting. I was talking to uh, to my boss, James, about this, that you, know, you get into the debate about literal or figurative – Uh, interpretations of the word day in Genesis, you know, yom. Is it 24 hours or is it a a prolonged period of millions of years? But, you know, the interesting thing is whether it's millions of years or 24 hours, it's clear that God didn't need to take any time to do this, right? So he wasn't dependent on, oh, this is going to take me a while because God is timeless. Right. So he doesn't, he's not dependent on Oh gosh, how much is this going to cost? Uh, how long is this going to take me to do this? Uh, this is going to take a long time for me to do this, or God could snap His fingers. I mean, look at the wine at Cana, right? Uh, how long did it take for Jesus?
0: Yeah, He's it it's all powerful.
1: Yeah, so He could He could take He could allow grapes to develop and 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 allow us to make wine over a period of years, or He Himself can do something instantaneously. So so the the, the interesting thing for me was in my discussion with my boss was. You know, God doesn't, that, that he's not dependent on any amount of time to to create something. He's It's just time, he's not contingent. He created time. He is not contingent upon time. So then the question comes, and I think we both kind of have an answer for this, but the, the, the question comes up, well, then why did he choose to create in time? Why did he choose to say, Evening and morning were the first day, whether it's literal 24 hours or millions of years. Why did he go with time? Why did he seem to use time?
0: In Genesis 1, you have an unusual kind of attention to time and sequence. Uh, And originally, of course, it was written in Hebrew. And in a lot of the Old Testament, this kind of emphasis on time and sequence is unusual. You don't find it very often. And uh, so in Genesis 1, you have, first of all, you have a number associated with yom. So first day, second day, and uh, you can search through the whole Old Testament for this. When is there a number next to the word yom? What Based on the context throughout the whole Old Testament, when do, what does it mean when there's a number associated with yom? That's one really good indicator that is talking about a literal day. Yeah. Now, the other really good indicator are, is the phrase: "and there was evening and there was morning." So it's giving God is doing His creative activity during the daylight time, and then uh, there is evening and there's morning. So then it comes to the next day. So it's the the sequence in genesis 1 is counting days from sunrise but it, it starts before the sun is there <laughs> you have the same day night cycle that we are familiar with but the sun isn't there in the beginning <laughs> right so there's some other light some other light these are the, some of the main things that i think gives a good indication that it is talking about literal days and why is that relevant to the people it was written to originally. It's relevant because this was given by Moses to the Hebrews that had just come out of Egypt. They were they probably did not get a day off in Egypt. Probably not. It's my it's my guess and I don't think I don't, I don't know that we know that, but they probably didn't get a day off in Egypt. And so this is the, this is a work week. God is giving them I, a sense of the normal work week. So what you do is you do your work in six days and you stop for a day and rest and reflect. This is a healthy habit and pattern. And this is really the basis for a week. The only basis we have for a seven-day week, the seven-day week doesn't come from anything in astronomy like the year and the month does. It comes from this in Genesis. Yeah, that that's so such a good point. I'm
1: that's the one point I wanted you to make because uh, it, it it takes us to Exodus twenty verse eleven, uh, where we read that uh, um, uh, in, in Moses in giving the law he says, "For in six days the Lord made the heavens and earth, and the sea and everything that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. For that reason, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy." So. In the working of the days, and I think this is the right off the bat, we are talking about Jesus in Genesis because he labors as a man. And later in the New Testament, of course, he becomes a man. God does. Yahweh does. And enters into our labors. And he is himself the Sabbath. He is our Sabbath rest. Uh, matthew eleven twenty eight come to me all you are uh, weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He literally is the Sabbath rest but but in setting up creation, God is setting a precedent for us that we don't get, as you said from a solar calendar or a celestial calendar. The only precedent for a seven day work week comes right out of of Genesis. And um, the French Revolution this is just a fun fact. Well, it's not fun. It wasn't fun for them. But in, during the time of the French Revolution, they tried to do away with the seven days and tried to do a 10-day work week. Uh, I think it was attempted in a communist country at some point it's Some where people have tried to mess with the, the seven-day work week thing. Yeah,
0: I think they tried it in Russia sometimes. Yeah, but... it
1: doesn't work. I mean, nobody – it just doesn't people work. People don't like it. No, yeah, no. Be, yeah. and, um, and any of us can attest working seven days – In a row is uh, exhausting. It's mentally, physically. um, There is something to be said for um, taking a rest from your labor uh, and taking a day uh, to worship and acknowledge and to rest, Uh, you know, whether a farmer, you know, once he plants and does all his work, he has to rest. There's only so much you can do. And uh, that's we see that throughout that we do our labor, but then we we leave it, and it reminds us, Wayne, of of relying totally upon God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, because we can't without Christ we can do nothing. And so I think that uh, the the creation was done in six days. I, I'm with you. I think it's literal 24 hour. But I'm not in saying all this. I don't mean to to, to shut down you know, people who think that it's it's different because there are well-meaning, I think, sincere believers who, who believe otherwise about Yom. But I think the scriptures are pretty clear that this is setting a precedent for what uh, Jesus will ultimately do for us in coming to us as a man, setting a pattern for us that we can follow. You know, come follow me. I created the work week. Do as, you know, and, and this is the pattern into which uh, you should labor, enter into your labors this way. And, yeah, uh,
0: and uh, in the New Testament, it does emphasize that Jesus is the Creator. In uh, John chapter one, yeah. you it and in uh, Colossians, Colossians chapter one, and in Hebrews chapter right, one, right, right. It's very clear uh, that Jesus is the Creator, and it's uh, in
1: Genesis too. We see the we see God. It's when he when he makes a garden. And this is one of my favorite passages, and I think reminds us of uh, of who Jesus is. You know, and, it, and, I, and I don't know exegetically if I'm allowed to do this, but I've always made the connection. Um, then we read in um, uh, it's Genesis 2, God does a couple of things that he doesn't speak into existence. Genesis 2, verses 7 and 8. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So here God is hands-on. And then in verse 8... The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and here he placed the man whom he had formed. And so these are things that he seems to be hands-on here. God planted a garden. He doesn't say, let the shrubs appear. There seems to be an active here that uh, that would be indicative of, of, of human agency, that, that God doing something. And then, then when he resurrects from the tomb, what does Mary suppose him to be? The gardener. She's not wrong. <laughs> She's not entirely wrong. God did plant a garden. But I, I wonder in Genesis when God is planting the garden, he has to know that this whole garden is where he's going to be laid to rest, um, you know, as the son of man. So it's remarkable. It, uh, to me is remarkable that the, the whole of the creation and the redemption um, points to Jesus in, as the creator and the redemptor. And I know we've talked about this in other podcasts, too, but I think I'm favorably disposed to the idea that uh, in Exodus, when the Israelites are at the Red Sea and they don't know what they're going to do, they're all panicking, right? Um, what uh, what happens? Uh, you know, God says, stand still. Uh, the Lord your God will will fight for you. And, you know, what are we going to swim? How are we going to get over this? How are we going to get through this? How, how are we going to get out of here? We're going to die. The Egyptians are coming down on us. we got a giant body of water in front of us. What are we going to do? But in Exodus 14, what does God do? He separates the water. And then who does he put into the midst of the separated water? Israel.
0: Yeah, and Dan, I think in our program, what we try to do is get people to real remember God is bigger than everything we're running into and dealing with Yeah, in, in our life on earth. We, God right. is
1: bigger. We are uh, we are faced with with situations that seem overwhelming and impossible, and certainly <laughs> we're like, oh God, you couldn't possibly help me again with this, could you? Oh <laughs> well, yes, I would love to. <laughs> uh, but each time, I want to remind you, because we can get pretty good at being self-sufficient, and sometimes God just taps us on the shoulder and reminds us of how dependent we are on Him for everything. Um, but uh, to to get back to what he does in the Red Sea here, you know, there's your, your enemies are pursuing you. You've got a a wall of water in front of you, and then suddenly the Lord parts the sea, and you can walk through. Um, and then he puts the children of Israel into the midst of the separated waters. And I think this reminds me also of what uh, G- God says to Abram in Genesis fifteen five. What did Jesus say that Abram's descendants would be like? The stars. In the heavens, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the heavens. So here it is in the Exodus, I think, a kind of a recreation of creation, separating the water and putting Abram's descendants in the midst of it, the Israelites who will shine as light to the whole world. And uh, I think uh, the Exodus is somewhat of a reminder to me of, of, of creation and how, how God does uh, cre- do, does create and does care for his creation. He didn't just, this is another thing too, he didn't just create stuff. And then, you know, sit up there in his heavens with his arms crossed and his feet propped up on the earth like a footstool. Um, I used to think when I was a new Christian, that's like the earth is God's footstool. I used to think that God had giant feet and (laughs) and he was like (laughs) kicking back on a throne. But but I matured in my thinking, thankfully, that that the, the footstool reference that the earth is God's footstool is that God will take on feet and come down here and stand upon the earth with us in the person of jesus and uh, so i think that the whole of creation um is uh, and as you do too we we both do the whole of creation points us to jesus and that's what we hope um our podcast does as fascinating as the james webb is and as wonderful as as the cosmos is it does speak of the glory of god and the glory of god ultimately is about who jesus is and so uh uh, I think that's why we have a unique podcast, Wayne. I don't know of any other cosmology or science podcasts that uh, do what we do. I mean, maybe they're out there, sure. but uh, uh,
0: Yeah, I don't know of any like it. And and as big as God is, uh, it's astonishing how he cares about each one of us.
1: Right. And that was what David was thinking when he looked at this, the universe in Psalm 8. He's looking at the stars, the sun and the moon, and contemplating lord who are you who am i that you care for me you know who who, who I look at your creation and I think well, who am i in all of this and you know when we contemplate the cosmos that's what that's what a lot of people say who are we in the cosmos and unfortunately sadly um a lot of cosmologies that that get into the reflective aspect of how we as human beings fit into all this we've been told over and over again that we're insignificant and that's just the most tragic thing ever. That that's yeah. the actual antithesis of what the heavens are supposed to remind us of. Yeah, yeah, it reminds us that the universe reminds us that we're small. But that's just the wonder of it. That we are small, but God cares for us.
0: Dan, just a just a, a verse from the Psalms that about this that I love. It's one of my favorite verses. Yeah, so, this is Psalm one hundred three eleven. Uh, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him.
1: Yeah, that's wonderful that that God cares for us even in our, our, our smallest needs. And it's just kind of interesting that we're talking about this because uh, you already know this, but uh, <laughs> Wayne, I'm on my fourth automobile that has gone kaput.
0: <laughs> yes
1: in the last uh some of my our long time good good heavens listeners may or may not be aware of it but in the since 2018 i have had four cars um and three of which were given to me by gifts and they, all three of them were were gifted to me and it was amazing each time it happened but i lost my honda civic to uh to uh uh miles it died of, of of high mileage and then uh friend's graciously went in and bought a used accord for me and then 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 that went away and then i had a, a another person give me a car and then that died and then uh just a couple of nights ago my most recent outback uh <laughs> has some transmission issues and i called subaru and and they're like yeah with this high mileage on your car you probably want to replace the transmission and uh, so i'm looking at uh a new transmission would be $8,000 or a used one would be about half that, but that doesn't include labor. But I don't say that to complain. I say all that to know that each time I've seen God meet my needs and uh, I have no reason to distrust that God isn't going to do something like that again. And he just, it's just he, his faithfulness, which amazes me. And, uh, you know, and immediately I'm like, Lord, you're not going to help me a fifth time. Are you? <laughs> He's like, Oh sure. Why not? Of course you just sit still and, and know that I'm God. I was trying to figure out what I was going to do, and God's just like, shh, stop. Don't figure it out. I've Mm -hmm. never, I didn't see anything coming um, in the last three times when uh, a car was was given to me. And and so I don't know what God's going to do again. All I know is (laughs) I have another car, my fourth car I can't drive right now. (laughs) So I'm kind of at the Red Sea. I have no chariots. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, but you know, I was reading the Psalms. Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. And you know, so it, it's not about uh, right. It's not about anything other than putting your trust in Jesus for for everything, not just uh, your salvation, uh, but your daily needs. Um, and uh, it's always in times like these where I think about just how dependent I am on on God for everything, uh, everything. You know, my job, my health, and uh, the ability to to do these podcasts and to edit things and to to have the, to, to, the 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 gift of of our podcast, Wayne. I'm getting to know you and talk. All these things are are gifts from Jesus, and um, we uh, we hope and pray that we in our podcast are good stewards of those things. And um, be encouraged, whatever you're facing, the God of the universe is going to help you. Yes, yeah. So uh, so take that. Uh, be encouraged with that. The God who made uh, distant uh, spiral galaxies and who, are, who is currently befuddling, uh, wonderfully befuddling the minds of uh, many secular cosmologists and, and astronomers who are going back to the drawing board and the dry erase board and the chalkboard and uh, the supercomputers and the colliders and wondering how in the world uh, did our universe come to be. It seems like more and more uh, it's becoming increasingly difficult to sustain the current models that we have of our universe.
0: Yes. uh, It's, uh, there's new challenges. New challenges. uh, Get new instruments or new data. It always makes new challenges.
1: Right. And so, you know, and, and to be charitable, uh, a lot of what I've read is uh, the scientific community is really excited about this. I mean, super excited about it. That, uh, the title of that paper we read at the beginning of the podcast, uh, Panic, At the discs, kind of tongue in cheek, but uh, it's really an opportunity where it looks like science, uh, the scientists, the scientists who study the universe, looks like they have some job security coming. A lot of data that to to process, (laughs) a lot of new mysteries Uh to solve. For every uh, new telescope or new invention that we find, uh, that we train our eyes on the universe, Uh, we are always. Uh, asking, ending up with more questions uh, than we had when we began first. So uh, uh, lots of work to be done. And uh, so here we here at Good Heavens will uh, keep you posted as much as we can on the cutting edge of, of new d- and exciting discoveries and always uh, reminding you that there's nothing in the universe that anybody will discover that will contradict anything in the pages of Scripture or what Jesus has done.
0: Yes, and... Even if we don't have an explanation for everything, there's, uh, there's been all sorts of things that have confirmed the history of, of the Bible. And right. And even things about nature and science that are in the Bible are correct. Yeah. So we, you can't just reject the Bible over anything. Science has come along because science uh, has confirmed the Bible actually a lot.
1: Yeah. And we're not, uh, just to be clear, just as a postmark to all of this. I know some people have said in the past, oh, you're saying science doesn't know, therefore God, and that's traditionally an accusation called God of the gaps, that we are um, saying God because, oh, look at all the science that, that has all these mysteries, therefore God did it. No, that's not what we're saying. You could you could continue to discover and probe and find things, but what we're saying is that you can, you can have a perfectly legitimate scientific explanation for something, but it's like... Uh, uh, like I said to Dr. Wickman uh, on our last podcast, um, you can have a, a, a mechanical explanation for how an espresso machine works. You can explain how it, that works, but that mechanical explanation of the espresso machine does not do away with the barista who's functioning with it.
0: Um, and that's yes. And the the barista machine was made with a purpose, right, with intelligence, right? By an intelligent, right, crea- creative, active person. Yeah.
1: So we may know that there's oxygen and nitrogen in distant galaxies, or we may know that galaxies are spiral, and we may know all that stuff about stars and the mechanics of it, nuclear fusion, and the strong and weak nuclear forces. We may know all of that, but none of those explanations rule out personal intelligent creative agency of god they don't i mean that's that's a different kind of explanation but it's not an uh, an illegitimate one and and just saying god we're not saying oh that that does away with the mechanical explanations there it's a both and god whatever they discover whatever new laws whatever new physics whatever new objects in the universe they discover uh, god is still and will forever remain the best explanation for why it ultimately is all here
0: Right, so Dan, I think uh, I'm going to put some um, an article on my blog with some of these James Webb pictures. You know, on a yes. podcast we can't show a picture in an audio, but uh, right. <laughs> uh, I'm going to put some 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 of the images in my, on my blog and explain Great. what they're about. So, and
1: we'll have that uh, link in the description notes of these episodes. Um, and so you can follow that we'll have links to the articles that we mentioned uh that i mentioned uh, about the disks and the red galaxies and the inactive galaxies and um, we'll have uh links to wayne's page so you can see the images uh, that we've been talking about and of course uh, if you by the time you've heard this you've probably already surfed the web and looked for some of these things and have seen some of the images uh, but we'll post them on wayne's blog and uh, so you can reference that so uh, wayne it's been uh a wonderful whirlwind tour of fascinating new James Webb's uh, James Webb objects. And it seems to me that uh, the, the latest discoveries will keep us in business for a while as a podcast, won't it?
0: Yes, it will. <laughs> <laughs> so we will uh, look
1: forward to future discoveries with Webb. And they are going to be coming fast and furious. So keep it tuned right here on Good Heavens. And Wayne, we will see you next time right here on... Oh uh, good heavens. Good heavens.